HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, You also find it in ripening foods like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Krishnandu Ray. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal of Food Studies. Our new issue, 21.1, features articles on food and power, on care work, on chefs, restaurants, and culinary creativity. Gastronomica also continues to publish its COVID dispatches, which are short portraits of early responses to the food crisis of this pandemic. So my guests today are Dr. Michelle King and Dr. Wendy Chien Fu. Michelle King is Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, specializing in modern Chinese uh, gender and food history. She's the editor of a book called Culinary Nationalism in Asia, uh, brought out by Bloomsbury uh, Academic 2019. And Wendy Jia Chen Fu specializes in modern Chinese history of science. She's Associate Professor of Chinese at Emory University and the author of The Other Milk, Reinventing Soy in Republican China, uh, which came out from University of Washington Press uh, 2018. And that book traces the scientific and cultural history of soybean milk in modern China. So welcome, Michelle and Wendy. Thanks, Krishnendu. Thank you. Lovely to have you here and uh, welcome to the listeners. So let me set up uh, our conversation a bit. Mm, this piece that I'm referencing uh, called Rumors, Chinese Diets and uh, COVID-19, 
questions and answers about Chinese food and eating habits uh, will be published in this month's, uh, that is February 2021, issue of Gastronomica. And it was a timely intervention that came out of a virtual panel that, in fact, I attended remotely to uh, on May 14, 2020, which featured the two of you, along with uh, Professor Miranda Brown, who is Asian Languages and uh, Cultures Professor at University of Michigan. And the panel was moderated by Donnie Santa Caterina, a doctoral uh, candidate in history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So that piece, uh, uh, Michelle and Wendy, it's been almost, what, nine months uh, since that panel. So to begin the discussion, I want to ask you kind of uh, what's going on right now. So the, my, my first question to you is this. How have things played out since that panel, uh, say in May uh, 2020? Uh, and what would you want our listeners to know? Michelle, do you want to go first? Sure. So um, when I think back to May, I honestly don't know if any of us anticipated that we would be where we are now um, in February 2021, still in the midst of a pandemic and, you know, vaccine now no longer on the horizon, but in existence, but still very much in a crisis mode. Um, I, I'm not sure any of us really could have thought that far ahead at the time. But um, in terms of Chinese food and Chinese restaurants, I think what's been really interesting is that um, there at the time we had our panel, um, our fellow panelist, Miranda Brown, she had cited this article that said that, you know, up to half to 60 percent of Chinese restaurants had closed. Mm. And this was in as of April uh, 2020 was based on credit card receipts that a particular credit card company was tracking. What was interesting was that already in May, um, a lot of those closed Chinese restaurants had actually reopened so that the same journalist issued another article saying that, you know, um, as of May, only 26% of Chinese restaurants had completely closed. And this was roughly comparable to the closure rates of other restaurants, in, you know, in the mm. industry. So something like 74% uh, open. But of course, it's hard to, you know, I, I, I honestly think we're not going to know the true toll on Chinese restaurants in this country until after this thing is over. It's kind of like who is going to survive? Because I know that in terms of um, particular communities, such as New York's Chinatown, San Francisco's Chinatown, these places that are based on tourist income and foot traffic have been absolutely devastated by um, the coronavirus. And the lingering effects, as with all small businesses, I think, you know, everyone's just scrambling to survive. And it's true of the restaurant industry as a whole, but I think it may be particularly true of uh, immigrant communities like the Chinatowns across America. So one particular um, interesting development that I've been watching is that uh, a cookbook author, Grace Young, has really been doing a lot to try to save Chinatown and to save its Chinese restaurants. And she has partnered with the James Beard Foundation to start this Instagram campaign. It's at hashtag save Chinese restaurants. And basically, they're asking people to post a photo of their favorite dish from a local Chinese restaurant. Uh, either you've dined in or taking out and you just post it on uh, to their hashtag account um, and kind of just, you know, publicize the, the idea that people need to really patronize these places or they're going to go under. She's also had this um, series of uh, YouTube videos 
Um, it's called Coronavirus Chinatown Stories, where she's interviewed different um, shop owners in Chinatown, talking about you know how how they're managing to survive or the history behind the restaurants. And unfortunately, some have already closed. Some really long-standing, uh, you know, decades-long institutions for open for fifty or sixty years have unfortunately been victims of the coronavirus. So I don't think we'll know yet until everything's all said and done, as is true with the restaurant industry as a whole how the coronavirus will affect, um, um, you know, basically the restaurant industry. But certainly, you know, I don't think we can take the macro picture right now, but on the micro level, individual restaurants um, are definitely, as with every other restaurant, really struggling. Yeah, and I think Grace Young is kind of a gem, absolutely. And I think uh, there was a study recently, Michelle, uh, which uh, confirms your number. Uh, which is uh, Stella Yee, uh, uh, Valerie and Bruce, a team of uh, researchers. We're working in the New York City, uh, Lower East Side, Chinatown. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, part of this, uh, uh, what I think uh, they call it the COVID closure project. And they identified 874 uh, food businesses in the Lower East Side, Chinatown. And uh, they uh, counted 233 uh, closed, so which is about... 27 percent you know Uh, and that's exactly kind of what what Mm -hmm. you were uh, citing Uh, compared to that's a little higher than say in the upper east side but you're absolutely right we will know uh, until uh, the long run so wendy do you want to add something uh, to that in terms of um from may to now um for for me it feels like in some ways Everything has changed, and other ways, <laughs> nothing has changed. I'm at the same seat that I've been the whole year. <laughs> I hope it you is. have moved at least once. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, your spine will thank you if you yeah. move at least once. Yeah. Um, no, it is true. We are we are in kind of a weird space where, on the one hand, a significant time has passed since we did that panel. And yet at the same time, um, as much as things have changed, you know, there are still so many different kinds of uncertainties. And of course, what Michelle was saying for the for the Chinese restaurant sort of businesses in the United States, it's, um, you know, maybe, maybe they will come out not as bad as um, other restaurant owners, but overall the industry, the restaurant industry clearly has, has suffered, um, you know, during these past nine months. I mean, I think that if there is something to be said um, about the this this past nine months is that there's all sorts of different ways in which the coronavirus has shed light on um, how complicated and um, implicated our food system is with respect to um, public health. And, and that happens in a few different ways. I mean, obviously going back to the spring and thinking about the... Um, uh, the, the 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 sort of um, realization that our our sort of food production system is kind of bifurcated in along two lines: one towards um, sort of institutional uh, settings like schools and and um, um, and whatnot, and those more sort of individual grocery chain and restaurant um, areas, and just thinking about the ways in which um, stoppages and disruptions clearly upset all sorts of different distribution um, and production lines. But there's also consumer habits, I think, that have shifted quite dramatically. And, and this is something I think we'll talk a little bit more about, but you know, just how much food that we're actually purchasing online now, mm-hmm. um, which we put a previously um, 
not necess- not to say that it was you know a foregone conclusion, but that you know there 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 are all sorts of different consumer habits that have shifted over these nine months that I think does open up space for us to you know to to start to think about um, the long term consequences of of this pandemic year. Absolutely, and I think uh, you put it very uh, kind of succinctly when you said co- both complicated and implicated, right? By mm. class, uh, race, uh, gender. Mm. Uh, so uh, going back uh, to the piece, uh, I'm looking at it; it's right in front of me. Uh, you opened the piece uh, by taking us to uh, the so-called ground zero on rumors about the so-called wet market of the uh, Huanan uh, seafood wholesale market in Wuhan, central China. So, kind of uh, maybe I'll throw this to Wendy uh, first. For an outsider, say like me, what is a wet market? And do Chinese? What words do Chinese use to describe a wet market? And uh, if it if there's something specific to a wet market, how is it different from a dry market? Right. Um, so I think the main distinction, certainly when we're speaking in English, between um, a wet market and a dry market, has to do with the goods um, themselves. So a dry market. Um, basically is one that sells packaged goods. So a wet market, by contrast, is something that prioritizes or sort of specializes in fresh food, whether that's produce or meats or seafood or whatnot. Um, In Chinese, the the term is actually a little bit more ambiguous because it's, um, so for example, if we think about the place, the sort of ground, quote unquote, ground zero of of, uh, covid of the coronavirus, um, the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market, its Chinese title is the Haixian Pifa Sutang. Um, so the Cai Sutang, which would be like a produce market or a seafood market, a Haixian Pifa Sutang, or so it doesn't actually indicate wet or dry. Mm. But the nature of these places, um, because they do specialize in fresh food, because it's kind of like a wholesale marketer, um, is that they are, one, characteristically wet because um, things are being washed down or water is being used to keep things cool and or they are they're they're processing. Right. Like um, so vegetables, they might be sort of cutting and separating um, seafood and animals. They might be coming in live and, and then sort of being butchered on site. And so, you know, just the general space of it is 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 wet <laughs> so that's that's what makes it a, a kind of a wet market and, right. and uh, michelle uh, is it true that all wet markets sell wildlife um yeah that's a a huge falsehood that i want to debunk and i think there's a lot of semantic confusion among a lot of uh you know non-chinese or non-asian observers um because they think oh wet markets Everywhere in China, you can buy, I don't know, bats or something like that. But that's absolutely not the case. Most of these wet markets would be something like what we think of as a farmer's market, right? You get fresh produce, you get fresher goods. These are a lot of small vendors. These are not, you know, um, agribusinesses that are coming into these markets. It's like little local farmers coming in to sell their goods. Um, So it's absolutely not the case that all of them sell what we would call, quote unquote, exotic wildlife, right? Most of them are going to sell pork and chicken and various kinds of seafood and fish. And it depends on the market. The ones that Wendy were naming in the names, one says seafood and the other is vegetables, you know, so you can kind of get a sense of what they are. But there are markets that do sell, um, you know, wildlife and those are scattered 
in China, they're much rarer. It's definitely not the case that they're everywhere. It's very much a regional phenomenon in China. So that's another interesting thing. When we think about Chinese food, a lot of times people just think of like Chinese food as one big thing, or they, they think of the stir fries or their local takeout. But when you actually go to China or when you actually get to know Chinese food, it's so diverse. The country is so big. There's so many people, so many different ways of eating. Um, the same thing is true of the consumption of wildlife, that it's much more the case that people are eating what we would call wildlife in the southern part of China, particularly in Guangdong province. Um, has just historically been the place where people are, you know, even in Chinese, like said to eat everything. So it's a very, you know, you have to be careful about making blanket statements. And certainly while Chinese people do eat wildlife, it's not everywhere. And certain places in the North, they regard this also as, you know, not behavior, eating behavior that they would undertake. So it's very much a regionalized um, consumption patterns. It's also been complicated because the consumption of these exotic animals has definitely increased since the opening of market reforms in China because it's a sign of uh, basically you, you, you got it, you flaunt it, you have money, you can buy these expensive exotic creatures and then consume them you know, in front of your friends and demonstrate, you know, I don't know, how much money you have or whatever. So it's really implicated in a lot of different um, circumstances. So, it's, so in some like ways, that. it's a bit of, A, it's regional, a very regional, and B, it is uh, associated, uh, consumption of some of the wildlife is associated with a bit of conspicuous consumption too. Is that what you're saying? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Um, and it's also interesting because um, since the coronavirus, um, you know, has has come out, um, the Chinese government has actually outlawed the consumption of wildlife. Now, that doesn't get rid of these markets entirely because a lot of these animals might be used for other purposes, such as their fur. They might be used in Chinese medicines, such as pangolin scales. Um, you know, they might be used for pets. They might be used for, um, you know, I don't know, as decorative items or something like that. So there's other ways, particularly Chinese medicine being the big way, that people can get around this uh, ban on consumption itself, like if for food. I see. Good. Uh, let's, uh, we have to take a quick break uh, and we'll be back uh, with Michelle and Wendy in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheese Landian because I take cheese seriously just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheese Landia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheese Landia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. Okay, we are back. Uh, this is Meant to be Eaten. I'm Krishnendu Ray talking to Dr. Michelle King and Dr. Wendy Jia Chen Fu. Uh, and the article we are discussing uh, is available in the current issue of Gastronomica, which is 21.1, February 2021. So uh, returning to our discussion, uh, Wendy 
uh, in terms of uh, the the, the uh, conversation in China uh, about, say, one aspect of it uh, is wildlife consumption that uh, appears to be at least temporarily banned in many ways. Is some of this discussion also uh, going on around uh, broader concerns of what we have heard before, adulteration, contamination of industrial foods, such as infant formula, ham, and pickled vegetables? Yes. So um, I can I just add one yeah, comment to what yeah. Michelle was talking about with respect to wildlife, and then I'll, I'll explain how it ties into this sort of food safety question. Um, I think when we use wildlife in English, um, there, there may be sort of unstated assumptions that um, – like the capture of wildlife is, you know, people just like going out into um, into the forest or, or wherever and, and sort of catching things. But for some of the um, animals that are quote unquote wild, like pangolins, um, there are actually captive, um, what it, they're sort of captive breeding programs that um, sort of build up and, and sort of create sort of supplies of these animals. And and I think that one of the difficulties um, that has been raised by the coronavirus in terms of how it relates to Chinese food is that um, it highlights how some of the terms like what what counts as wild and, and, and what kinds of practices we associate with wildlife um, may not necessarily be stable across different geographic or cultural borders. Um, and so... Certainly, you know, like some of the calls that have come in um, to just simply close wet markets or to sort of ban, um, you know, the, the, the capture or the, the sale of wildlife in China. Um, some of these kinds of policy arguments or, or sort of suggestions, I think, won't make quite as much sense if we don't actually go in and look at um, what exactly is happening in China in terms of what counts as wild and not wild, for I example. See, I see. Um, and certainly when it comes to sort of concerns about food, I think that for, you know, the, the typical, you know, middle class Chinese consumer, I think they're not really worried about um, whether or not there is sort of wildlife um, that's being sold at markets that they are also buying um, pork or chicken or any other kind of seafood or whatever the case may be. I mean, for them, you know, the the major transformation that has taken place since the 1990s is that um, the overall sort of food production system um, has has sort of been reoriented as, you know, the, the country has moved away from a planned central economy to a sort of market-driven, liberal, um, liberalized um, um, economy. And, and that has opened up a lot of different, you could say, uh, spaces where, where unregulated activity can happen. And so adulteration of foods, um, the sort of use of pesticides and other kinds of chemicals in order to um, to either hide and or sort of improve the quote-unquote nutritional profile of certain foods or um, or whatnot. Like these are these are actually much a much greater concern for for the typical Chinese consumer than they would be, I think, um, than this question of wildlife. I see. Hey, uh, if I could just jump yeah, in for ahead. just a mm-hmm. second, Krishna, I just wanted to add to what Wendy was saying um, that absolutely a lot of this quote-unquote wildlife is actually farmed. 
and it's yeah. farmed by small, um, small independent farmers, basically who rural people who were literally encouraged by the Chinese government to go into these, you know, different kinds of creatures because their livelihoods had been taken away by agribusiness, right? China is also industrialized, it's huge operations, huge food operations. And, you know, what are these little farmers to do? You know, so the government encouraged them, you know, to 20 years ago, maybe to start farming some of these other kinds of animals to and encourage a kind of consumption of these animals. And then we find ourselves in the pickle we are in today. So if you, you know, all of a sudden, uh, totally outlaw this wildlife farming, there's going to be a lot of people who have no line of work and have no way to support themselves. So it's a complicated, you know, that's what I would want to impress on listeners too. It's a really complicated, uh, when you're on the ground, it's much more complicated than just saying, ban this or don't do that, or why can't you eat like we do? You know, it's just not at all the same. I think in the piece you guys cite, uh, if I recall correctly, that I think it employs 14 million people, and you just can't uh, uh, you just can't find an employment replacement just by banning it, and so that'll have uh, dramatic consequences on uh, employment generation in the economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and just a huge, it's a huge uh, 73 billion dollar industry. This this quote unquote wildlife industry. Now that doesn't make it without many, many problems and in need of regulation and all kinds of things. But, you know, there is this complexity to it. Mm. Hey, Wendy, your, your conversation mm. about this wild, how wild, and what is wild, uh, kind of raised this analogy in my head. Because uh, until I came to the U.S., for instance, I had never heard of people, uh, met people who uh, ate venison or who ate, say, alligator sausage. Uh, how does that analogy work? In in some ways, is what we imagine as wildlife in China partly like what venison is in the U.S.? Or is that analogy fallacious? Um, I think that it can be helpful in certain respects. So um, thinking about uh, wildlife as food um, and how certain kinds of wildlife may be consumed as food in China and it being somewhat akin to, say, people eating alligator sausage or venison in the United States can be helpful um, if only because it opens us it opens up a space for us to think about other social and cultural economic forces that shape our understanding of what gets to count as acceptable meat right so um, some of the things which um, go into um, say like social identities that are um, rooted in a particular hunting tradition or or the 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 primacy of sort of local um, self um, ideas of self-sufficiency and being able to sort of you know get your own uh, to get and stock your own um, refrigerator, as it were. Um, there are lots of important ways in which this clearly can be sort of identity forming and sort of community forming for 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 various people. Um, I think where the analogy starts to fall apart a bit is that, of course, the wildlife that we're talking about. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be consumed as food, um, and and I and there is this sort of question of whether or not they're necessarily deemed as as wild. So, for example, um, uh, turtles are uh, one of these one of these animals that is um, bred um, cap- sort of in captive breeding programs and farmed, um, but they're not 
technically seen as either domesticated, nor are they seen as wild per se. And yet I think most Americans probably don't eat turtle in any capacity. Um, and, and I do think that at some level, part of what that opens up is, um, is just sort of thinking through how some of our um, assumptions about sort of what is and is not sort of normal or appropriate food um, is clearly tied up with our own situation and, and may not necessarily be the best framework for understanding another place and time. Okay, so we are almost running out of time. I'm, so I'm going to ask you one factual question and then maybe a, end with a bit of a conceptual question. So one factual one, um, and either one of you can pick it up, is, is it true that MERS, SARS, and swine flu have all come from China? Okay, that's a total falsehood. So <laughs> that's an easy one to answer. I think it's really interesting that for a lot of journalists, a lot of politicians, particularly in the United States, people just conflate China with disease. I mean, this is a very, very old trope. Um, it's something that people have talked about for a very long time, for many centuries. Um, and it is, you know, kind of a cultural misunderstanding. And, uh, you know, um, a Texas politician attributed all of these things to China without realizing that MERS stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and indeed was first recognized in the Middle East because of camels, I think. And swine flu comes from mostly somewhere in North America. They're not sure if it was the United States or Mexico, but this brings up another really big point that these um, zoonotic diseases, that is diseases that kind of jump from animals to humans, it doesn't just happen in China in a wet market. It happens anywhere there are animal-human interactions, which can be in your poultry processing plant in uh, Kansas or whatever, right? It can be in your uh, beef factory farm in 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 uh, Oklahoma. I, I don't know where all these things are exactly, but I want to really point out and emphasize that um, these kinds of zoonotic diseases don't just come from quote-unquote exotic places. It's just anywhere that humans and animals are interacting. The potential for such a leap is possible. And, you know, the same kinds of conditions of crowded cages and animals smushed together and all different kinds of excrement and all these things mixing together, the same thing takes place in any kind of factory farm here in the United States. So, you know, it's I really want to emphasize that Yes, this one happens to have first been recognized in China. They aren't sure still what the origins are. They're really trying to track that down. They don't, still don't know. But anything could easily happen in any of these other situations of industrialized farming where we have a lot of animals packed together and humans interacting with them. Perfect. So let's let's close with this. Like you, I think you um, end the article. It's a series of conversations, and you said... You say Chinese food is a pedestrian thing and we should treat it like a pedestrian thing. What do you mean by that? Well, for me, um, when I say that, I mean, you know, let's stop talking about, or I mean, maybe it's impossible to stop talking about it, but stop thinking about Chinese food as something exotic. It's just an ordinary thing that a billion people eat, you know, or more than a billion people. It's just every ordinary kind of dinner it's what your grandmother makes. It's, you know, it's just something that if we think about it in its sum total, and we think about Chinese food as this huge category of eating, right? Wildlife consumption is a very, very small percentage of that. 
And I think if people were to understand more the, the breadth and the depth of Chinese cuisine and Chinese food habits and Chinese eating, they might understand better where something like wildlife consumption would fit in, that it doesn't speak to most Chinese people's ordinary everyday consumption practices. Fantastic. Wendy, any closing thoughts for our listeners? Wow. Uh, Michelle said it very, very well just a moment ago. Um, no, I think um, it's if there's one point to take away is that when whatever we call Chinese food, it encompasses a tremendous amount of diversity. And um, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and actually, it's it's perhaps the fear that we lose a lot of those diversity, both in terms of the ecosystems that we rely upon to create those foods, as well as the kinds of foods that are included. Um, and it, I think sometimes um, the fear that has been generated certainly over the course of this past year um, has made it easier to kind of turn or look away and maybe not take the effort to really consider what that diversity means, but it, it's in our interest to try and do so. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us. This is really exciting work, and listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, Volume 21, Issue 1, which is due out this month, as I said before, February 2021. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week for Lunch Interrupted, uh, which is COVID-19 and Japan's school meals. It will be a conversation with Alexis Sanborn, who is an independent researcher. She directed Nourishing Japan, a documentary that explores food education and school lunch in Japan. Thank you. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.